Hello, welcome to the Al Burda podcast. This episode features musician and artist Faraj Abiyad. The conversation is about Faraj's music, his perspective, and why he's excited to be a part of the Al Burda festival. This podcast is powered by Afikra in collaboration with the Al Burda festival from the Ministry of Culture and Youth in the United Arab Emirates. Hope you enjoy the conversation. So, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for making the time. Of course, of course. It's an honor to be here. And uh, I'm really excited about this collaboration. Um, thank you, Afikra, for bringing me on today. And uh, I'm excited to kind of bridge the worlds of the U.S. with the U.S. mission to the world of the UAE with the uh, UAE Ministry of Culture. And, um, and I'm excited for these performance we have coming up. And uh, excited to get into kind of my background and my approach towards my art and my work. Uh, so sure. Yeah, thank you for having me today. Of course. I want to talk a little bit about something that surprised me. Um, you grew up playing violin. Yeah. And I'm always surprised by folks who start on one instrument and then become excellent at another. I, I grew up playing classical trumpet um, and took that very seriously and then started playing piano probably at the age of like 16. Um, but I never became a professional musician um, at either of them. When you started playing, did you feel like you had found um, a, uh, a bond with the instrument that you didn't find with violin? Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, the oud uh, lends itself to singing uh, more than any other instrument in the Oriental or the Arabic uh, music system. Uh, so, you know, I was playing the violin for many years. I was playing behind many great singers, great Arabic singers living here in the U.S. Um, and I always preferred to sing, uh, but it was always hard to kind of balance the two, you know, holding the violin, the technique. Uh, it's a little tricky to be able to sing and play at the same time. Uh, even like the register of the voice is so close to the violin, so they don't exactly complement each other when you only have violin and only singing. Whereas the oud, even if you're missing the rest of the orchestra, uh, the oud, you know, has a different register than the voice, slightly lower, um, and it complements it so beautifully. Besides from the fact that it's very comfortable uh, to sing and play this instrument, it's almost like the Western equivalent of the guitar, you know. So the singer song, the the singer song, central singer songwriter thing. Yeah, and especially to me as a composer, you know, I was composing a lot on the violin as well. And the Arabic music that I focus on is very singing focused and mm-hmm. focuses on the poetry, pre-Islamic to, to modern day uh, Arabic poetry. So, you know, the words are, are very important. And the oud, uh, again, by complementing the singing, it allowed me to compose more comfortably as well. Yeah. So who, if you were to sort of introduce the, your work to a classroom of teenagers that were not familiar with um, music of the Arab world, Um, whether they were a classroom of teenagers in Australia or in Beijing or in Mozambique or in Bogota or in Baltimore. How would you sort of introduce the the, the music that you play? That's a great question. I mean, uh, to try to find like an international 
language on how to explain uh, what I do. Um, you know, it's hard because not all cultures share the same approach as the as Arabic or traditional classical Arabic music, uh, especially in composing. Um, like, for example, it's very common and known even amongst non-musicians in the Arab world that um, the composer tr- grabs a, you know, takes a poem that's dear to him or takes a poem that was given to him by a master poet and then he composes music around it and that this is the relationship that you have the the poet who his expertise is poetry and the composer who his expertise is music and they kind of combine those knowledge. And then, of course, you have like arrangers in Arabic music. Mm-hmm. It's common that there's an arranger. So it's almost like these three... Uh, these three people collaborating to create the work of art. Whereas in, let's say here in the States where I grew up, it's very, you know, the most common way that uh, people write music or composers write music today, uh, especially in the more contemporary world is that whoever's writing the music writes the words as well. And it's, Uh so then it's very foreign to, to them, the concept of the three partners, you know, coming together to write this song. Um, so somehow, you know, I guess I'd have to break down the system uh, and, you know, let the students know, okay, well, first it starts off with the poem uh, and then the poem has its own rhythm. So then we uh, place some sort of uh, time signature or some sort of a rhythmic pattern that complements the poem. Then... Uh, the composer has to have this knowledge of uh, a musical system that's based on maqamat, uh, which are musical modes that often have quarter tones and that are much more vast than the Western music system. Uh, and depending on where I am, like let's say I'm in India, so I would explain differently than if I was in the States because Indian music has many similarities to Arabic music and also has a vast amount of scales and um, divisions of tonalities. So, so it's kind of a loaded question. I'm trying to figure out how, to, how I would approach it in a way that if there was an international audience, how to, how to bring this to everyone, uh, this concept. Um, but that's basically the idea, you know, and then we, we place the maqam, that would be the next step. Uh, and then... The, the final step is kind of to, to have some sort of inspiration, or at least for me, my personal approach, you know, of course, there are so many technicalities and so many things that we had to study and learn to be able to execute this music or compose this music beautifully. But in the end of the day, there's the inspiration aspect or the spiritual aspect, um, the creative aspect, um, which is something that can't be learned. It's something that has to yeah. come from you. Um, and I, I guess it's almost the, the most important ingredient. And it's the most uh, internationally shared ingredient because, yeah. yes, maybe in, in other countries or other cultures, uh, they have different steps or technical means to getting the final result in the composition or the music. But within all these cultures, the, the, when you're creating, you need this inspiration. And uh, this can be shared uh, throughout cultures. So, yeah. So I want to dig into the poetry a little bit. You know, it's so funny. If you had asked me that question, 
I, I wouldn't have been able to guess the way you described it. I wouldn't have thought that the poem is really the thing that sets the table. Um, can you think of a, can you think of a, a poem that comes to mind that can be a good example of this this process? Hmm. That's a great question. It could be it could be uh, an original um, or a classic um, a classic poem that really exemplifies this this process. Hmm. That's a great question. Um, yeah, I think there's a, an example I have through my own work uh, would be a poem that I took from uh, a great poet from Kuwait. Her name is Maysoun Suedan. Um, she has this beautiful quote where she says, uh, uh, So uh, basically the translation of this is like, if it wasn't for you, my ear wouldn't uh, achieve this uh, musical ecstasy uh, that when I listen to a song. Uh, without you, my uh, my heart or my emotions wouldn't feel uh, the meaning of this song. So almost like, you know, when you're in love, when you listen to a song, that song means so much more uh, because you're actually going through it, um, which yeah. is so beautiful. And the way that the, the rhythmic pattern of this poem is like this, like, like it has this, uh, to me, as the composer, and everyone can see it differently, but to me, I felt like it was being divided in threes. So I used a rhythm that's divided in threes. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And, you know, most rhythms in Arabic music and and Western music as well are divided in four. So I kind of took this as an opportunity to be creative and use a, a rhythm that's divided into three. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have lots of rhythms that are in three. Um, for example, uh, like the waltz, one, two, three, one, two, three, in Western music. Uh, in in Moroccan music, we have this amazing uh, three rhythm that's like, like something very funky. Um, so I decided to play with this, uh, with this concept. Um, and so then when I sang it, it came out something like this. لولا كما طربت أذني لأغنية لولا كما عذبت قلبي معنيها لولا كما سرحت عيني ولا ضحكت واستغرب الناس حول ما الذي فيها لولا كما طرب one two three one two three um, and then once you have the three you can play with other with all these rhythms that are divided in three and it's it's very exciting, you know. Almost every culture has its own rhythm divided in three. Interesting. And of course, I like to pull from Arabic culture to preserve the Oriental tradition of rhythms. Um, you know. Yeah. So, um, is that a, is that a contemporary poem? Yes. Yeah, it was written, you know, within, you know, this decade. I would assume. Yeah. Maysoon's a very young. Uh, poet and uh, she's really a prodigy in her work um, and you know that's another interesting thing about Arabic poetry that maybe uh, isn't as familiar 
to non-Arab audiences that because the Arabic language is so rich and so complex, um, the poetry as well is a big part of this. Um, so much of the Arabic language is based on the Quran, which has such a deep tradition of um you know, grammar and rhyme and rhythm. And so this translates as well into the into the tradition of poetry, which actually came pre-Islam as well. And part of this tradition is that the poet, the poems should have a meter. They should have a poetic meter. And the poet has the um the ability to choose any of these meters, but once they choose the meter that they're going to use, they have to stick to this throughout. Um, and this is this is metered poetry. Of course, there's free poetry as well. Um, for example, the great Mahmoud Darwish, who was yeah. known to write beautiful free poetry, but he had a strong education in uh, in metered poetry as well. Yeah, he was breaking rules he understood. Exactly, exactly. And this this is something in art um, I always lean towards is that. You know, I love the idea of breaking the rules as long as we know the rules and the traditions beforehand, um, which yeah. is my approach. I think it was, it was, uh, I think it was John Coltrane. I think it's usually associated to him where he says, learn all the scales, learn all the rules. Once you learn them all, you can forget them all. Yes, yes. And that's so beautiful. And I think it's true within poetry as well. Though I think still there's this tradition where, you know, every so often, I'm not an expert in poetry. You know, my expertise is more in the music side of things. And I have um, kind of this group of incredible poets that I always refer to, uh, get their professional opinion uh, when I'm choosing poetry to compose or when I, even after I compose to make sure that I'm being loyal to what's happening in the poetry or loyal to the rhythms or to the meanings. Um, so sometimes, you know, I present them with a poem and they're like, oh, well, the concept behind this poem is amazing and original but the rhythm is broken in the fifth sentence. So maybe you shouldn't use this poem because, you know, we're trying to keep, to preserve the standard of this beautiful tradition of metered poetry. So me as the composer, I'm always trying to, to balance this, you know, like when am I willing to, to have the poem not be as perfect as maybe it should be for the sake of the music or, or you know, which poems I should be choosing should I be composing in free poetry? You know, these are all interesting conversations. Yeah. It's interesting because there's this, uh, I think um, if somebody walked by your, walked by a performance of yours, you know, or if they were, you know, listening to YouTube or Spotify and, or, and Rami or something like that, and they, and they hear, they hear one of your songs, um, they would say, I think oftentimes, oh, this is classical Arabic music. And I think those three words, I would imagine, can be confining, can f- maybe feel confining. Um, and I'm wondering, maybe they don't to you. Do yeah, you feel that's like a great question. classical Arabic music um, restricts an evolution that you're yearning to create? Or is that fully something I'm, trans- I'm projecting onto you? And you think, no, 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 what are you talking about? The, the, the possibilities are endless. Well, you know, I see that as a compliment that they would hear my music that way because I love classical Arabic music. Um, and it's kind of my inspiration uh, for my whole project, really. Uh, though, yes, I believe uh, that it's important that we evolve it or 
maybe the word evolve implies we're improving it, but I don't see it that way. I see every um, every generation of this music having something different that's gorgeous. You know, like the classical Arabic music in the 20s is a school within it within itself. You know, the 30s and so on until today. Um, and I think that yeah. Uh, I'd like to hope that the music that I'm producing or the newly composed music that I'm working on within this genre has something that's that's different. And uh, not that you can compare my work to the work of Muhammad Abdel Wahab or Riyad Sambati or all these great classical Arabic composers, but I'd like to hope that, you know, that the Faraj Abiyad composition has something that reflects our generation uh, or reflects you know, some uh, modern uh, evolutions to to music in general. Uh, so, yeah, I would hope that that they would see this. But um, the truth is I haven't been so experimental uh, for, for someone to see this obviously yet, but I have some cool experimental ideas for the future later. Like, you know, like one one idea could be to have like a house a DJ kind of like weaving rhythms into the composition, which is, you know, something from music today, uh, you know, electric midis and synthesizers and things like this uh, combined with the classical Arabic. Like this is some something I have in mind for the future uh, to kind of bridge, bridge these worlds together. Um, but lately the way that I've been setting up the group is kind of the traditional... Um, the traditional setup. Uh, however, you know, a lot of the musicians, like for example, we were talking about uh, Leith Siddiq, uh, you know, previously, and he's an incredible musician who, of course, he's mastered the Arabic technique, uh, but he's brought so much to this technique from studying jazz, classical, Indian. Uh, and listening to hip hop. and <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So... So this, even though he might be performing, uh, you know, he's often the director in my musical programs here in New York. Um, so even though maybe he's performing my compositions, work, which are traditionally based uh, in his playing, you'll very often hear some modern flavors. Uh, but this would kind of take, this is a less obvious um, taste of modernism than like throwing in midis or throwing in you know, yeah. modern technology or something like that. Uh, or I want to talk a little and... bit. Um, there's a couple of things I want to talk about. Um, and maybe we can start with something you mentioned. Um, you mentioned spirituality. Um, and I, I'm curious if, if you feel like this, uh, the music that you're playing and the art that you're making is a, a spiritual endeavor for you. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, you know, I'm... Because in this music, the composer kind of his expertise, like we said before, his expertise is the music. And then he looks somewhere else for the poetry or to other poets. So I'm always, uh, but I have the complete autonomy as to which poems I'm choosing. So I'll specifically look for poems that resonate with me spiritually or that I feel tell my story, you know, like, um, so many of the ancient poets of the Arab world had their own stories, you know, like incredible, incredible stories. 
um, that we could relate to today, thousands of years later. Um, some of their stories are about romance. You know, like most of what I'm composing is ghazal, which is like, you know, romance, love. This is tarab music in general, focuses on, on this genre of poetry in general, uh, like love songs. Uh, however, you know, I try to get creative sometimes uh, and choose poems that have to do with uh, coexistence or religion or someone's uh, spiritual journey. You know, like there's so many poems like this from Ibn Arabi, so many Sufi uh, poems or great Sufi poets who had these incredible philosophical journeys. And so this is kind of, I think, like a place where um, my compositions stand out because a lot of people are afraid to compose these things. Like a lot of a lot of composers are are worried to compose something that's not a love song or a love poem uh, because it's harder to to capture an audience with like some philosophical idea. Are you are you responding to that fear in the absence of the that type of music, or is this something that just comes naturally to you and you don't have the fear? Um. What do you mean by that? Exactly? Are you, you're saying a, a lot of other composers don't do this because it may be hard to do or hard to pull off or audiences may not be able to connect with it. Are you responding to that? Um, or are you just saying, oh, this just comes naturally to me. I am naturally drawn towards talking, thinking, writing, and composing and creating um, in this vein. Yeah, I think uh, a little bit of both, but more of the latter. You know, it comes natural to me. This is... I want to be able to tell a message through my art. Can you give me an example of what one of those one of those lyrics may be like, or um, just uh, put a little more meat on the bone? Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the songs that I'm going to be actually performing at El Burda that I composed is um, from a very famous poem of Ibn Arabi, uh, where he has his famous line, which is "El Hubbu Dini wa Imani." which means love is my creed and my religion. Um, and this is kind of a message of coexistence that, you know, yes, there are many different religions or different cultural sects, and maybe they're all divided, but something we all share is love. Uh, and this can bring us together spiritually. And this is kind of a very Sufi concept. Uh, and it's a theme that runs throughout Sufi. That was Ibn Arabi? Yes, Oh, I, I thought it was Bob Marley, but I guess it was both. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was Bob Dylan, and then they told me uh, it's an auto. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so, and, you know, in the poem, he says, uh, uh, In the beginning of time, I used to hate my, my fellow. Uh, if he wasn't the exact same religion as me, but then all of a sudden my heart became open to accepting every image and everything. Uh, like the um, like the monasteries, and the, he starts creating this image of the gazelle, and you know this very spiritual kind of image. Uh, so he starts saying like the, even 
the idolaters or the idols and even the and even the the holy place uh, in Mecca, even the the um, uh, the the Torah, the um, tablets. I was looking for this word tablet, uh, and then the scrolls of the Quran. So he's like combining all the religions and all the heresy, almost as well. You know, because he's saying like even idolatry is somewhere where he feels spirituality. Uh, and then he goes on to say, Udinu And the last night, the last line is, uh, you know, I kind of went on the spiritual journey. I came across all religions and all faiths. And what I realized in the end is that love is my religion. Uh, and this is such a beautiful message. And I think everyone can can kind of resonate with this, especially in the Middle East where there's so many religions and so many cultures. Um, and we tend to think that we're all divided, you know, because of what's happening today. Um, but really, you know, over a thousand years ago, Ibn Arabi from Andalusian uh, Spain, uh, who was an Islamic philosopher, uh, was like almost more advanced than so many of us today in his thought and his philosophy, which is, which is so beautiful. And uh, we kind of have this tendency to think that we're, that the old way of thinking is obsolete or not progressive. But in reality, in this case, it, it's so much more progressive than so much of what we're seeing today. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Um, it's interesting because, uh, you know, here you are, you, you, I'm speaking to you, you're in New York right now. Um, in a few weeks, you're going to be, uh, from the date of this recording, you're going to be hopping on a plane, going to, going to the United Arab Emirates to be a part of this festival um, and performing for an audience that you don't typically perform for. Um, and so I, I'm curious what that, what you expect um, once you sort of take the show on the road a little bit um, and uh, uh, get in front of a, a sort of very transactional um, audience and play at, in the UAE, what does that sort of, what do you expect? What are you excited about? Yeah, well, the truth is I have no idea what to expect uh, because it's my first time performing uh, in the region. And that's actually what makes it more exciting. Uh, you know, and I kind of, I have certain expectations, but maybe I'm completely wrong about them. So that'll be fun to see, you know, how my expectations are broken as well. Um, but uh, I'm excited about it, especially because, you know, here in the States, um, so much of my project is based around this poetry. And the audience, in order to appreciate what's happening, they kind of have to be familiar with these concepts. And so much of my audience in the States is Western or non-Arabic speaking. So there's always that, uh, <clears throat> you know, that struggle to, to have to translate things or to explain things or who was this poet where, uh, especially at Al-Burda, so many of the guests will be way more well-versed in this stuff than me, myself, you know? So it'll be really fun to, to perform these things in front of uh, experts in the field. Um, so it'll be nice to have the the audience kind of 
understanding these concepts right away. And uh, I'm hoping that they, because they have this deep understanding of the material being performed, that they'll enjoy it more. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens. What's cool about your performance, and uh, I was excited to find this out, is that um, you going to the festival is a part of a broader initiative from the U.S. State Department and the U.S. Uh, a partnership between the U.S. Mission in the UAE and and the UAE Ministry of Culture and Youth, who are the the hosts of the entire festival. But it puts you in a unique position, um, unique for you at least, which is you are all of a sudden um, not a cultural ambassador for the Arab world in New York. All of a sudden you are a cultural ambassador for the U.S. in the region. Um, Talk a little bit about how that hat um, sort of that hat change feels and what are you sort of excited about um, in that sort of sort of role reversal. All of a sudden you're a representative of the U.S. and the, the sort of multitudes of the U.S. culturally, artistically, creatively in, in the UAE. Yeah, well, that's a great question. And, you know, uh, kind of the answer has to do with the story of how this all came about. Um, I was um, someone, I was in the UAE at the time, and someone reached out to me uh, just by coincidence, it seemed, and uh, from the US mission. And they told me, you know, uh, we love your music and uh, you should apply to perform at Expo uh, under the US mission. And, uh, you know, we, we select maybe you know, 10% of the applicants or something like that, but we feel you have a great chance of of being selected. And uh, I told them, well, you know, from my understanding is that uh, the Expo is a place where each mission, each country shares its culture. And I said, I don't know if I'm the best choice for this because my music isn't American at all. You know, my music is Arabic, so... Yeah, I said, like, maybe it would make more sense if I'm a country singer or something like this. I said, are you sure that they would be interested in in my project? Um, And the person who was helping me at the time, she was, uh, she's Lebanese-American, so she understood the music. And she told me, uh, no, actually, Belax, it's Ahsan, because you're showing uh, that there's this beautiful Arab culture uh, growing and, uh, you know, being shown in New York and in the U.S. as a whole. So it's this beautiful kind of uh, story showing the story of immigrants and, uh, you know, Arab immigrants to America. And kind of when she put it this way, I realized that uh, it actually does tell a beautiful story. Um, when I was in Lebanon recently, I met uh, this incredible Oud uh, player. His name's Osama. Uh, and he was telling me, you know, uh, it's interesting to him to see my music and how it's evolving in the States. You know, like I never had this project in the Middle East. Um, he said it almost has, even though it's completely Oriental and uh, Middle Eastern, there's some sort of influence like by the air in New York or the spiritual, like just like here in Lebanon, when I compose, I have the inspiration from al-jabal you know so the same thing here in new york somehow uh, i'm getting inspiration from being on the streets of the east village or you know walking through brooklyn and this is 
uh, infused into my music. So even though this music is in no shape or form American. Um, well, I actually would challenge you on that. I really, I, I, I would love to hear the challenge. Yeah. No, I really, I really hope that, I really hope that you walk away from this experience. I truly hope that you walk away from this experience embracing that you are making American music. Mm. I, I truly hope that you understand that. Um, that these things can be two things at once. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, um, uh, salsa music coming out of the Bronx is American music. Mm. Um, and what you're doing is American music. And it's at once, uh, it's at once spiritually Islamic music, it's at once Arabic music, it's at, it's at once you're playing a string instrument, you're part of that genre. But I think that the idea that you are a cultural ambassador for both regions um, is a powerful idea that maybe you haven't begun to appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, just I'm starting to like... Just now I'm starting to appreciate it, uh, you know, starting from that initial conversation with uh, the U.S. mission. She kind of when we spoke about it, she kind of changed my perspective. And I was like, you know what? Yes, there there is American influence to this music. Like you said, a, you know, Latin, a Latin musician living in the Bronx. Just by osmosis, he's going to be influenced by the New York culture. You know, and so many of my teachers and mentors and who are all originally from Arab countries, uh, so many of them studied here in New York or studied in Boston or studied in great music schools here in the States. And this changed their approach towards the Oriental music. Well, it's interesting. It's interesting because I feel like there are there will be a thousand Farages in the audience mm. who walk through the door not thinking that this is American music. Mm. And then, inshallah, walk out the door thinking, oh, wow, this is. And this, this music is of two places and is a, and is a transnational. There's transnationalism. Um, there's something um, binding that crosses oceans and crosses borders. Um, in this art. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, something in my music that's in a way very American is the the melting pot of influences. You know, especially New York is like a melting pot of cultures. Um, and we kind of have something unique here in New York. I don't know if you've spent time here. Um, yeah. Yeah, I lived there for a long time. Oh, wow. Okay. So so then you're very familiar with the fact that here in New York, if you go to like an Arab social event, for example, you'll meet Moroccans, you'll meet Algerians, you'll meet Lebanese, Khaliji, Syrian, Palestinian. And kind of all these places are coming together here in New York. Whereas if you were living, if each one was living in their respective country, they might not meet so many diverse Arabs. Uh, and this diversity just within the Arab culture in, in New York, which kind of New York allows for this to happen in a way, like being in the States allows for this mix of Arab cultures to happen. So this has influenced my music greatly because I have access to so many incredible uh, Arab cultures through music 
from just my group of friends or my group of fellow musicians. You know, like if I've noticed that, you know, for example, in my travels to Egypt or Lebanon, if you if I were to sing with an orchestra there, uh, every single person in the orchestra pretty much would be Egyptian. Or if I was in Lebanon, everyone in the orchestra would be Lebanese. But here in New York, if I were to put an orchestra together of musicians, we don't have enough Lebanese musicians here in New York to make the full band yeah. Lebanese. We have to have maybe three musicians from Lebanon, three from Egypt, two from Morocco, you know, and it becomes that each of those musicians brings their culture and I start to learn well, from them. Well, what I think is going to be interesting about this experience at al for you is um, the similar melting pot, right? And to be surrounded by artists and thinkers from, in this case, across the Islamic world, which is really in every single direction. So folks from Africa, folks from the Asian subcontinent, and folks from Europe, folks from North, Af- North Africa, from the, the GCC, from the Levant, from the U.S., um, and really sort of having that similar experience at a different crossroads. Yes, yes. And this is actually why, you know, during my last visit to the UAE, I felt, though it's different than New York, uh, I felt so at home there because they have that melting pot uh, of cultures there, which I'm so familiar with. Um, and they kind of share that, uh, you know, the Arabizi, you know, like the English and Arabic together and uh, this international language of English kind of bringing broader cultures together um, outside of the Arab world. So, so definitely, you know, this is part of also what makes me excited for this upcoming performance is that I feel though I'm in a completely different crossroads, uh, it's almost a similar uh, kind of audience that I have here in New York. Do you know anything about some of the other uh, musicians and thinkers and uh, folks who are coming over as part of the U.S. mission um, and sort of collaboration with the, the U.S. Missions Cultural Diplomacy and the UAE Ministry of Culture and Youth? Um, actually, no, I don't. I know my group of musicians, like, uh, in addition to me, we're like, uh, 10 other musicians, each one. Sure. Yeah. Do you want to say some, uh, shout some of them out? Yes, please. Oh, oh, you're asking me. Uh, yes. So, uh, the director of our music, uh, program, his name's, uh, Yarub Smeirat. Uh, he's an incredible violinist. Um, uh, he's currently one of the uh, head uh, faculty members at uh, Berkeley Abu Dhabi. Uh, and he's kind of been responsible for putting this incredible band together of, uh, of this melting pot of Arabic musicians uh, based in the UAE or based close by. Um, some of our key musicians are coming in from Jordan, uh, because uh, Yarub's originally Jordanian and has beautiful connections in the music scene there. Um, and then I have one musician who's very dear to me coming with me from the States. He's an American citizen, but he's uh, originally Palestinian. His name's uh, Zafir Tawil. Uh, he'll be joining me and uh, he's going to be uh, the director of the rhythmic section. Um, so I'm very excited to kind of have someone with from 
my local music project to join cool. me over there. Um, and yeah, and the music program program is going to be really exciting. Um, it's going to be a mix of songs that I composed and songs that are like classics that everyone uh, knows and loves from, you know, the golden age of Arabic music. So it should be kind of a fun uh, mix of contemporary and classical. Okay. So I'm going to ask you um, a question that people ask uh, when they speak to, uh, this is a, a standard debate among in hip hop circles. Okay. <laughs> but I'm going to apply it to you. When it comes to classical Arabic music, in your opinion, and obviously in, in no particular order, and this is a completely subjective thing, who is in your top five dead or alive? Um, I would say the top because, you know, my focus is more on composing. There are others who their focus would be on singing or uh, playing an instrument. So because my, my focus is composing, I would say Muhammad Abdel Wahab. How come? Let, before you go through each one of them, how come? So there. Make the case. I think <laughs> there are like five or six, let's say there are 10 uh, great Arabic composers. You know, Riyad Sumbati, uh, Zakaria Ahmed, um, Sayyid Darwish. I mean, there are countless incredible classical Arabic composers. Uh, but from all of them, I resonate with uh, Abdel Wahab. Uh, I think mainly because of the way he wrote his phrases. Um, you know, like the famous thing everyone says about Abdel Wahab is that, oh yeah, he's known for mixing the West and the East. You know, like because it's it's known that he would take like, a, have a French composer work with him and create this crazy violin section with harmonies that, there's no way that existed in the Middle East at the time. And he, he kind of brought this school to life. But to me, what fascinates me and uh, makes me fall in love with his compositions is his, his phrasing. You know, his phrases are so clear. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are many other composers that when they write uh, a sentence, a musical sentence, uh, it's not so catchy or it's not, I think it's very important for Arabic music to be catchy. and to Like a good composition is one that sticks in your head. Uh, so very often, you know, they'll write a sentence that kind of leaves you on too much of a cliffhanger or, um, or that you just, it's very hard to explain because these concepts. Can you sing an example of one of these phrases that, that it sticks in your head, you can't get out? Yeah, for example, like... Uh, you know, it's so beautiful and so clear. And then he goes, like it's so beautiful like the way he wrote those sentences like I don't know where he got this inspiration of course there are other composers that also have these in incredibly catchy phrases but I think Abdel Wahab was like he has so many I don't know how he was able to come up with so many incredible 
phrases sure. like this. And um, okay, so that's number one. Yeah, I could talk about him all day. So uh, okay, number <laughs> so two, the second one. <laughs> so number two, in no particular order. So. So we talked about a composer. Now I'll move to like a singer. Um, so I think Um Kalsum, I would say, is my second favorite inspiration. Um, then after, the, should I explain why or keep moving? Um, yeah, give me a little, give me a little snippet on why why Um Kalsum. Um Kalsum. Uh, this is hard to just like give one line explaining why but um to me what draws me to um kalsum and what makes her this legend that's like uh, everyone just agrees that um kalsum is the epitome of a great the greatest arabic singer let me ask you let me ask you a precise question on um kalsum because you could do you could do an hour on it okay yes what do people misunderstand about her greatness Mm. Well, I very often hear people like my Syrian friends, they'll tell me like, oh, you know, I don't like Um Kalsum's voice. Uh, I don't like the sound of it, but I prefer to hear it from George Wassouf, or I prefer to hear Um Kalsum songs from other singers, uh, which basically tells me a couple things. One, that for some reason they don't like the tonality of hearing Um Kalsum. And two, that they love her compositions. Because what does that mean? That somehow they're not able to listen to it on her voice. But the songs are so gorgeous that they're enjoying it on someone else's voice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I prefer, of course, I love George Wassouf or so many other singers add something beautiful to singing her songs. But I prefer to hear those songs from Um Kalsum because... Uh, first of all, her knowledge of singing and maqam is like unbelievable because of her, what she lived through. You know, like she, first of all, she started, and this goes back to how Islam is such an important part of Arabic music, even secular music. Uh, you know, she started off as reciting Quran and a master of Tajweed. Uh, of course, it's famously known about her that her father would have her dress like a boy when she was young and recite the Quran. Uh, so she has this incredible education of Tajweed, which translates into the singing, you know, like her pronunciation of the words, the way uh, she pronounces the consonants and the vowels. Uh, it just comes out so strong. Uh, her knowledge of the maqam, the musical system, her knowledge of the ornaments, uh, And what's unique about her is that, like we were talking about before, she has all these all this knowledge, but she breaks the rules and she just she sings from her ahsas, you know. She, and this is what I love about her singing, like this raw feeling. And sometimes she could be singing the most simple words, you know. It's not like the poetry I'm singing is like historical, and the words are are already something in it of itself. Yeah, they're ornamental already. Yeah, but, uh, you know, sometimes, of course, Um Kalsum sang amazing qasaid as well. But even in her songs in Amiya, you know, she's singing the most simple thing, but that raw feeling is so complex and so interesting. 
And like, I love something I love about her is like that raspiness in her voice, like in, in the older age, because also Um Kalsum, in every decade, she has a voice, you know, like she didn't sound the same in the 30s as she sounded in the 70s. So like, you know, that raw sound that she has uh, in Inta Umri or Al-Flayla, uh, this thick voice, you know, uh, it's unbelievable. So, yeah. so yeah. I always, I always equated, uh, when I'm speaking to non-Arab friends of mine, I always say that Um Kulthum is like the prince of the Arab world. Yeah, yeah. Just prolific, in some cases hard to, hard to take in, you know? Like, people always say they love listening to Prince songs sung by other people. Yeah. Because uh, he was, he's such a genius that he was trying to break rules for himself. He was playing with the, with the forms himself. Um, okay, so let's, let's keep going. So number three. Uh, number three. Um, hmm. I have to think about this one. Um, who do I love? I'm always, I've always been very drawn to uh, the voice of Wadi Asafi, uh, the great Lebanese male singer who was kind of, you know, he was known to sing lots of duets with the famous uh, Fairuz. Um, he was kind of like, Fairuz was the epitome of the female Lebanese voice and Wadir was the epitome of the Lebanese male voice. And, you know, as a Syrian, you know, the accent is so similar. Um, so I'm very drawn to the Lebanese traditional Arabic music. Um, and Abdel Wahab himself said that Wadi Asafi is the best Arab voice from all the Arab countries. He's the most ideal voice because of his range. You know, he was able to sing extremely low notes and ex- like the highest notes as well. Um, the flexibility of his voice, you know, something that's very characteristic of Arabic singing is the flexibility of the voice. Actually, here in the States, like recently when we performed at the Met, uh, there were a lot of singers that worked in the Met staff uh, because in Met Live Arts, a lot of the producers are musicians themselves. And they were just like, how do you make your voice spin around like that? Or how do you do these moves? And this is something so that we almost take for granted in the Middle East that we have this these flexible voices. And uh, Wadi Asafi was really a master at this, the way he was able to twirl his voice and, and, uh, and bend the musical notes. Uh, something like sometimes I would even listen, I'd spend hours just listening to like a two-second clip of his voice to try to recreate it with my voice. Uh, and I would like pause those two seconds every half millisecond <laughs> yeah. to try to capture it. And I would go crazy if I couldn't get it. And there are some even till today, I just can't do them, you know. Can you give me an example? What, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, one, one phrase I worked really hard on from Wadi Asafi, uh, he has this very famous uh, mawal called Walaw. And it's like, it's Ataba, you know, it's like he's, this is a traditional of Mawawil, like vocal improvisation, where you're kind of... Um, mourning a love or mourning something. This is like how you would translate the word ataba. So he sings this one word, walaw, and he spins it around like and uh, contorts it. Is that the word in English? Yeah. He, he bends the word in an amazing way. Uh, and he, while he's doing this, he's holding his breath for a very long time. 
So the phrase goes like, it goes, Amazing. It's so, as you said, it's not even circular, it's spherical. Yeah, yeah. Wow, amazing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So this is what the, this is part That's of That's what the Asafi, okay. And he was a composer as well. He wrote beautiful songs and he wrote uh, beautiful qasaid. He took some really amazing ancient Arabic poetry, some that we don't even know the author, and uh, composed these, which is also amazing about him. Okay. Yeah. Number four. Number four. Number four. I'm tempted to say Fairuz because, of course, we have to mention Fairuz. Okay. Um, Fairuz, Abdel Halim. Is that four and five? I think so. Okay. And maybe I would, I would say something that I love about the two of them that they share. Sure. Is the idea of introducing the pretty voice. To Arabic singing. Because, you know, Um Kalsum, Sabah Fakhri, who I probably should have put as three or something, maybe with Wadir. Um, yeah, those singers, they, the focus was less on how pretty their voice sounded and more the strength and the pronunciation and the, uh, the perfect intonation and all these things. But uh, something that's unique about Abdel Halim and Fairuz and why so many people love them is because their voices are so silky and gorgeous. And delicate, yeah. And warm and delicate. Um, and kind of Arabic singing has gone more towards this approach lately, you know, with the invention of microphones. You know, back in the day, uh, a great singer was someone who could project, you know, which is... Um is a great example of this. She probably yeah. filled the room with her voice. You know, but now that we have microphones, you could sing softly and sweetly, uh, and which is, you know, in a way more enjoyable for a lot of people. Um, and I just love Amazing. listening to the, to, the, to the delicate touch of uh, Abdel Halim and Fairuz. Um, yeah. Okay, so if I were to ask you just to, to wrap up, um, what are you uh, sort of the single thing that you're most excited about, um, about participating in the festival. Um, what, why did you accept this position? Why did you accept it? What are you sort of most looking forward to um, in terms of being part of the entire festival? You know, mainly I'm uh, just excited to tarab this genre or classical Arabic music. Um, it's something so communal and so spiritual. Um, and I'm hoping, and kind of what makes me excited about the project and performing in the UAE, is to kind of have this communal uh, communication between the audience and to kind of experience this music with everyone uh, and enjoy it together and kind of, you know, tarab translates as ecstasy or almost like getting high. So to kind of all get high off this music together. And, and I'm very much also looking forward to the musicians I've never performed with each musician, whether it be the Nai or the Qanun uh, or the Aoud, they'll each take their solo and I'll be able to, in a way, be an audience and enjoy 
listening to those musicians while I'm on stage singing with them. So I'm most excited, you know, to just enjoy music together with everyone. Um, and then, of course, you know, something that's uh, that we discussed before is that my own compositions are so meaningful to me because uh, I'm choosing the poetry based off of things I've been through in my life. And so I'm really excited to kind of see how people react to these new, this new art, you know, or these new pieces um, that I'm going to present. And then, of course, I'm excited to, uh, to connect with everyone singing classics, you know, like we're going to sing, of course, Abdel Halim and Um Kalsum and Sabah Fakhri. And we're going to sing this known classical repertoire as well. Um, so I'm looking forward to enjoying that with everyone and kind of see how, how, everyone, how everyone reacts, you know. Amazing. Well, I'm also very excited about it. I will be in the audience and I oh, will be, be cheering there. you on. Nice. Uh, for sure I will. Amazing. Um, well, thanks so much for making the time to talk. I really appreciate it. Of course, this was of course. A, a, a real treat for me. And I can't wait to, to meet in person and to see you do that spherical, uh, <laughs> those spherical singing techniques in person. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Looking forward to talking soon. Bye. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. I hope to see you at the festival. For more information, go to burda.ae. That is B-U-R-D-A dot A-E. The festival runs from December 19th to the 21st at the Dubai Exhibition Center as part of Expo 2020 Dubai. The festival is organized by the Ministry of Culture and Youth, UAE. And this podcast is powered by Africa Podcasts. Take care.